Episode 72, The War of 1812. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Before our last episode on the Industrial Revolution, we were talking about the end of the colonial period and looking at the lives of several of the founding fathers, including Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Ben Franklin. I feel like there were several other notable people I left off that list, most notably Alexander Hamilton, but since he has his own musical, you can just go listen to that instead. So by the beginnings of the 1800s, the United States was starting to solidify itself as an actual nation and beginning to spread westward. But it was also beginning to spread eastward in a way, because as an independent nation, it was developing a healthy transatlantic trade network with the countries of Western Europe and also in the Mediterranean as well. Now, this transatlantic trade network meant, of course, ships sailing across the Atlantic Ocean, carrying American cargo and American sailors. Our first problem with all this international commerce was the Barbary Pirates, which I mentioned back in episode 69, talking about Thomas Jefferson's first term as president. But scaring off the pirates wasn't the only problem for our shipping industry. Also, I should say, we're going to come back to pirates in this episode as well. So back to the shipping industry, Great Britain and France were fighting each other in the Napoleonic Wars, and the U.S., partly because of the shipping industry, was trying to remain neutral. The reason that we were trying to remain neutral in the United States was because we wanted to keep trading with both Great Britain and also France at the same time, because, hey, that's better for us. We're trading with both of those huge markets in Europe. But neither of those countries wanted the U.S. trading with the other. In other words, Great Britain didn't want the U.S. trading with France and vice versa. Great Britain only wanted the U.S. to trade with themselves. So both France and Great Britain used their navies to try to keep U.S. merchant ships from trading with the other countries. And they did this mostly by privateering. Privateering is the practice of a country using its own navy or hiring people to engage in sort of semi-legal piracy. So what the British Navy would do, for example, if they saw an American merchant ship sailing alone in the Atlantic, is that they would sail up alongside the merchant ship and threaten to sink the ship and kill all its sailors if the ship's captain didn't give up the ship and its cargo. And a merchant ship really didn't stand a chance against a well-armed ship of the Royal Navy. So the merchant ships usually gave up. Once the ship was captured, it would then be crewed by officers of the Royal Navy who would sail it back to England and basically steal all the cargo. And then they would have the ship as a now an English merchant ship. The sailors who had been on the American merchant ship were forced into forced labor for the British ships. They were forced to sail on the British ship and do all the really awful work on board. They were essentially sort of slaves or prisoners. The process of capturing sailors on the high seas and forcing them to work for the other side's ships is called impressment. Now, under Thomas Jefferson, relations with Great Britain declined, as I mentioned before in the episode on Jefferson, because he favored the French, though they were also impressing American ships and sailors that they thought were sailing to England. 
So after Jefferson, whose second term ended in 1808, the next president was James Madison. Madison was a friend of Jefferson's. He was also a Democratic Republican, as Jefferson had been. And Madison also favored the French. So under Madison, the British continued to impress American sailors. American merchants, though, who were fairly wealthy and therefore fairly influential, increasingly began to complain to the government that the government needed to do something about the problem. And this issue was also increasingly promoted in the newspapers. Now, this reignited a pre-existing American hatred for Great Britain because they became sort of the villains in this, even though the French were doing it too. And more and more people began to call on the government to take some aggressive action. Adding to these tensions along the coast and seafaring towns, farther inland in the Northwest Territories, which mostly means Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Michigan, that was Northwest at the time, there was also there in that Northwest Territory area serious unrest among the Indian tribes who were being very aggressively pushed westward by American settlers, and the Indians did not like this. The Shawnee tribe, led by a chief named Tecumseh, was trying to organize other Indian tribes in the territories into resistance, and they also tried to enlist British help from Canada. Now, the American settlers heard about this, which further inflamed the anti-British sentiment in America. Some people even began calling for an invasion of Canada. So on the East Coast, you've got British hatred because of the shipping, and up in the Northwest Territories, you've got British hatred because they're interfering with the fighting with the Indians. So all of this kind of comes to a head in late 1811. Under pressure, President Madison called together a special session of the U.S. Congress. They debated this issue and some other issues, but they debated this issue for more than six months. But in June of 1812, the United States declared war on Great Britain. Now, this was a little weird because Britain really hadn't done anything except possibly meddle with the Indians and also attack some ships. But the United States just unilaterally declared war on Great Britain. Great Britain, for their part, were a bit shocked that their former colony was ready to fight them again in part because the British government had just changed parties, and the new government had already ended the policy of attacking American ships. But back then, that kind of news could take several months to get back across the Atlantic. So probably, while the news was coming from Britain about the change in policy, and the willingness to not attack American ships, the news was coming back the other way from America that America had just declared war on Great Britain. I wonder if the two ships carrying the news crossed paths in the Atlantic, it would have been interesting to see what had happened if they had stopped to chat in mid-ocean and said, hey, uh, you know, hey, we've stopped attacking your ships, and but we've declared war on you. Okay, that's a little awkward. Anyway, back on shore, the Americans actually did attack Canada. This is a little known fact about America, but we did at one point attack Canada with the goal of driving the British completely out of North America. The U.S. tried to invade Canada in several places, including trying to capture the city of Montreal and the town of Queenston, which was just across the Niagara River. All of the American attacks were unsuccessful because of well-organized defense by the British Army. The whole Invade Canada plan quickly became a stalemate, and American forces never gained any Canadian territory. In fact, the British, with the help of Tecumseh and the Indian Confederation, managed to capture Detroit, Michigan. President Madison put 
General William Henry Harrison, who would go on to become president himself one day, in charge of the effort to recapture Detroit. There was a big battle called the Battle of the Thames, which was fought on the Thames River outside of Ontario, not the Thames that runs through the middle of London. Anyway, Harrison defeated a combined force of Indians and British, and Tecumseh was killed in the battle. And all of that kind of settled things in the Northwest Territories, and there wasn't much more fighting there. But there was still fighting going on at sea and down in the South. When the war started, there had been some naval engagements where the small American Navy did pretty well. Early on, the U.S. frigate United States captured the British frigate Macedonian. And then later, the USS Constitution, another frigate, defeated and captured the British frigate Java, off the coast of Brazil in all places. It was this battle that earned the USS Constitution the nickname Old Ironsides because a couple of times during the battle, British cannonballs hit the thick oak sides of the Constitution. It wasn't iron, it was just oak. But the cannonballs just bounced right off. The USS Constitution, as I said in an earlier episode, is still sailing and it's moored in Boston Harbor where today it is a floating museum. Anyway, after those early successes, the Royal Navy, which was still the Royal Navy and the strongest military force in the universe at that time, sent more ships and it blockaded several U.S. ports on the East Coast, which prevented the U.S. frigates from sailing out and doing any damage. Back in Europe, Napoleon was defeated for the first time before his exile return in 1814, which allowed the British to send more forces to America. They put soldiers ashore in Maine, and they sent troops and ships to Washington, and then another fleet with 50 ships to the Gulf of Mexico, which was supposed to capture New Orleans. Now, the force that attacked Washington captured the city easily in August of 1814, in part because Washington's right on the water, and it's basically undefendable. Most of the government left the city, and they took the valuable documents like the Constitution and the Declaration and a large painting of George Washington that was in the White House with them when they left. After the British captured the city, they burned it, burning many of the buildings to the ground. They also set fire to the White House and the U.S. Congress building, though neither of those were completely destroyed. They did manage to burn up the entire Library of Congress, which was contained in the U.S. Congress building. But that was later mostly replaced by Thomas Jefferson, who after the War of 1812, donated his entire personal library, which, like I said a couple episodes ago, was over 7,000 volumes. Now, this did mark, by the way, the only time that enemy forces have ever captured the U.S. Capitol. That is, if you don't count the 2020 presidential election. After burning Washington, the British sailed a bit further up the Potomac, intending to capture the city of Baltimore, which was an important shipbuilding center. But Baltimore was much more ready to defend itself than Washington had been. They had built up earthwork barricades around the city, and there was a big fort to defend the city in the harbor. The main fort that guarded the harbor was called Fort McHenry, and the British put troops on shore to attack it, and meanwhile sailed naval ships up close enough to bombard the fort, or at least that was their plan. The British ships sailed as close as they could, but they were not able to get close enough to effectively bombard the fort with much accuracy. Despite this, they did begin a naval bombardment that lasted for more than 24 hours, straight through the day and night. 
But this bombardment failed to inflict much damage on the fort. And the British forces on land decided that since the fort wasn't damaged, they would be unable to capture it. So they withdrew and they got back on board the ships and eventually everybody sailed out of the Potomac. So this left Baltimore uncaptured. And the Americans took this to be a big victory. Now it was kind of just a draw and a British retreat, but the Americans took it to be a big victory. Now there's an important side note about this battle. On one of the British ships that was part of the bombardment, there was a captured American lawyer named Francis Scott Key. All night he watched the bombardment of the fort from the ship, believing that the bombardment was successfully destroying the fort. However, at dawn, much to his surprise, he saw that the American flag was still flying over the fort, which meant that the fort was still intact and still in American hands. He was so moved by what he saw that he wrote a poem about it. You may recognize the first verse of the poem. Oh, say, can you see, by the dawn's early light, what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous night, or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave? or the land of the free and the home of the brave? Yeah, that poem became the U.S. National Anthem, and it's now known as the Star-Spangled Banner. It's set to a British drinking song, of all things, and it wasn't made the National Anthem until 1931. But even more importantly than that, it was played in 1918 during the seventh-inning stretch of the World Series, which caused it to be forever associated with sporting events. Play ball! There's actually some competition for the job of the national anthem, and some people wanted it to be America the Beautiful, and other people wanted My Country Tis of Thee, which is ironically set to the tune of God Save the King, the British national anthem. Of the three contenders, the Star Spangled Banner is by far the hardest to sing because of the range of the notes, but it's also the most butt-kicking song of the three by far, despite the fact that it's a song about a battle that basically ended in a draw and the British heading off because they had better things to do. It's not like the Battle of Baltimore was a huge, glorious American victory. But it did turn into a pretty amazing national anthem, despite the fact that the battle itself was just a draw. However, we are about to have one huge, glorious American victory down in New Orleans. The Battle of New Orleans took place in early January of 1815, about two weeks after America and Great Britain had already signed a peace treaty that ended the war. Again, communication back then was kind of slow. We're going to come back to that treaty. It's called the Treaty of Ghent, G-H-E-N-T, Ghent, in a minute. Anyway, in New Orleans, the British had 50 ships and several thousand troops commanded by General Pakenham. On shore, the American forces were commanded by General Andrew Jackson, who, like Harrison I mentioned earlier, Jackson will go on to become a U.S. president. A lot of people will actually follow this path through the course of the years, becoming famous as generals and then going on to become president, though nowadays it's more common for them to become famous as a democratic congressional grifter first, then become president through some sort of deception. I think that seems to be the preferred path nowadays. Anyway, in New Orleans, Andrew Jackson coordinated the defense of the city, 
that included building an extremely long earthen dike with fortifications all along it. Now, the defense of the city was famously kickstarted with the help of a pirate. I told you I'd come back to the pirates. Jean Lafitte, who was a notorious pirate in the Caribbean, controlled a bunch of islands south of the mouth of the Mississippi where he had a little colony, and he carried on many of his piratey adventures from there. These islands were important for controlling the entrance to the Mississippi, so the British came to Lafitte and offered him money if he would cooperate with them and let them pass unobstructed up into the Mississippi. Lafitte apparently pretended to cooperate with the British, but then, on the side, he warned New Orleans of the British plans. Then later, an American patrol of ships went out and attacked Lafitte's islands because he had sort of given away where he was. And despite that, Lafitte still wanted to defend the city of New Orleans. So he went directly to Andrew Jackson, and he offered to help defend New Orleans in exchange for a full pardon. Jackson, who didn't have the authority to do this, agreed, and Lafitte and a bunch of the pirates took part in the battle. Jackson later commended him as one of the most able men in the whole battle. And after the war, President Madison did indeed grant him a full pardon. But pirates will be pirates. And so after the war, Lafitte and about a thousand of his followers left New Orleans and they sailed a bit south and west. And they set up shop on the island of Galveston, which was still technically a Spanish holding rather than its current status of being a place where Houstonians who don't like the beach go to go to the beach. Lafitte stayed there on Galveston for a while before being chased off by American naval forces, and he went back to raiding the Spanish Main, which is the Spanish mainland up and down the coast of Central America. The official story of Lafitte's death is that he died at sea in a battle with the Spanish ships in 1823, but there's also a credible story that he faked his death and ended up living in Lincolnton, North Carolina, living on until about 1875. Sorry, I got distracted by pirates there. What were we talking about? Yeah, the Battle of New Orleans. Anyway, on the morning of January 8th, British General Pakenham led a charge of about 8,000 British troops against Andrew Jackson's defensive line, which included pirates. Despite being heavily outnumbered, the Americans held the line and inflicted over 2,000 casualties on the British while only having 85 people wounded on the American side. Pakenham and the British withdrew, and at some point while they were reconsidering their options, both sides heard that the peace treaty had already been signed. So probably at that point, both sides then headed off together to the bar owned by Lafitte in New Orleans to celebrate the peace. That bar at the corner of Bourbon Street and St. Philip Street is still there today and is supposedly the oldest bar in the United States. Anyway, the peace treaty that I mentioned a minute ago was called the Treaty of Ghent, and the basics of it are that both sides agreed to cease hostilities and go back to the pre-war boundaries and basically just leave them there. This was the point at which the final boundary between Canada and the United States was decided, except for far out west where there's still some dickering to go on. But the eastern border has been fixed since the Treaty of Ghent in 1814. The treaty did not mention the impressment of American sailors, but the British government had already stopped the practice anyway. The treaty also set up a couple of channels of arbitration so that disputes between the U.S. and Canada, and more importantly, between the U.S. and Great Britain, could be handled more diplomatically rather than, hey, let's go to war. 
And basically, the United States and Great Britain have been besties ever since. Seriously, though, the Treaty of Ghent did do a lot to end the animosity between Great Britain and their former colonies, and it reestablished trade between the two countries, which, because of the Industrial Revolution, which I mentioned last episode, that trade is about to explode into a massive seafaring trade enterprise. So why does the War of 1812 matter to us today? Well, like I just said, it allowed the U.S. and Great Britain to be friendly again, which is going to matter a lot in terms of trade down through the years, and then also in terms of the United States coming over to help out a little bit during World War I and World War II. But one other thing that happened in the War of 1812 is that the Indians lost their last little bit of foreign support because the British withdrew completely. And the tribes that had helped the British, and basically Indians in general, were now seen as the enemy. I mean, they'd always sort of been the enemy in some ways, but now it was sort of like not just settlers versus the Indians. Now it was going to be the United States against the Indians. General Jackson, who had fought against some of the Indian tribes, including the Creeks, at the beginning of the War of 1812, is not going to treat them very well when he becomes president. We're going to come back to that in a couple of episodes. But first, we have to finish getting the European powers to stop meddling in the New World. So join me next episode as we watch President James Monroe issue the famous Monroe Doctrine, which is sort of the beginning of the end of European colonialism in the New World.